the younger generation. Young people could be the most powerful voting bloc in America. That is, if they actually voted. Why don't they? Find out the answers to this question and hear from the impressive young people who are actively changing America on our podcast, The Youth Vote. We interview activists, elected officials, and others. We also dive into different issues with a focus on how they impact the younger generations in our society. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for joining me, Ty Wyckoff, on the Millennial's Guide to this historic moment. Before we begin, I've got a few exciting announcements. Number one, I know that I haven't been able to announce this on the show just yet, but the show's Instagram has launched. It's been going for just about a month now, but for those who don't already follow the show there, something that I have done for a very long time on my own personal social media accounts long before the show is provide regular brief updates on big political events. So typically that's elections, but I also do it through other big things that happen. Needless to say, this last week's been pretty busy, but the idea is to keep people informed of what's going on and provide a little bit of my own analysis and insight. So just before the Georgia elections, I started to integrate what I had already been doing on my own personal social media accounts and integrating that to the show's Instagram. So go check it out. The handle is at this historic. Give the show a follow and you can check out the stories feature for regular updates and things like that. You can also see all of the cover art I designed for each episode there as well as a link in the bio uh, to a place that consolidates all of my links. So all the writing I do on Medium, all the platforms you can find the show on, and stuff like that. The Instagram has been a ton of fun. It's been great to interact with listeners, answer questions, and do the political event updates. And to lighten the mood a bit, last week we did a caption contest. I put up a lovely photo of who I think we can all agree, after last week especially, to call disgraced Senator Ted Cruz. I accepted submissions for a caption, and then everybody voted on their favorite caption. The reward for the winner is a shout-out on the show, so it was a very close one, but congratulations Chelsea O'Hara of California. It was a very funny caption. If you haven't seen the photo or the caption, I have posted both on the Instagram, so go take a look. Again, that's at this historic. Give the show a follow. The second big announcement is that on February 1st, the Millennial's Guide to This Historic Moment's Patreon page will be launching. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a great way for fans to support their favorite creators financially in return for really cool benefits like bonus content, behind-the-scenes stuff, and ways to get to know me better through hangouts and video chats and things like that. I'm really excited about it. I've been working on it for a really long time. So thank you so much to those who have reached out about it for your kind words and your desire to support me. It means the world to me. And look, I get it. It is a tough time for everyone, so the Patreon is for those who are both willing and able. But that's not the only way to support me. You can definitely be sure to leave a rating or review at your favorite place to listen to podcasts or on iTunes. And above all, the best way to support me is to spread the word. Tell your friends, your family, anyone you think might enjoy the show. Now today's episode was really tough to write. With everything going on, things just feel unstable. It's a weird, dark moment for everyone right now. Um, but for this episode, I, f- I felt like we needed to deal with some hard truths. But I also wanted to bring perspective and light to this conversation. 
I know things are a bit uncertain and wild right now, but I gave this episode my all and I hope you'll be able to find value in it. Thank you so much for listening and please enjoy the show. To a few of us here today, this is a solemn and most momentous occasion. And yet in the history of our nation, it is a commonplace occurrence. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. Mr. President, I want our fellow citizens to know how much you did to carry on this tradition. By your gracious cooperation in the transition process, you have shown a watching world that we are a united people pledged to maintaining a political system which guarantees individual liberty to a greater degree than any other. And I thank you and your people for all your help in maintaining the continuity which is the bulwark of our republic. Peaceful transfer of power is a hallmark of U.S. democracy. It is, as Ronald Reagan said in his 1981 inaugural address, the bulwark of our republic. It's what guards our republic from threats from within. Holding the tension between the parties, it assures the public that fair and free elections are how we do things here. And that at the end of the day, we are all on the same team when it comes to our national security and our national peace. We've had some bumpy ones, but the peaceful transfer of power has always been successful. Like Reagan said in his address, it's something that we take for granted, almost like nothing more than a formality. And that's the miracle of it. It's one of those things that if you don't notice it, that's because it's working. But on January 6th, 2021, the bulwark of our republic and its strength to withstand the internal threats to that republic, was cast into serious doubt. How did we get here? How do we need to respond? And most importantly, how do we move forward? Now we're going to be talking about all three of these questions. First, let me clear the air on a few things. The attack on the Capitol by Trump supporters has prompted an assortment of conversations in the political space. Some of those conversations we need to have, but there are also conversations that serve no other purpose than to defend the indefensible or distract from the real issues on the table. So I'm uninterested in the conversation about big tech and free speech because Twitter suspended the president's account. (laughs) He's the president. He can literally get in front of a camera anytime he wants to, and every American is going to watch it. And if you're a conservative who thinks Twitter's ability to do this is censorship, look, Twitter is a private company. It's not censorship. It's capitalism, the train you rode into town on. So if this is the point where we're willing to let the government step in to regulate big tech, but making sure these companies pay their fair share in taxes is an egregious front to liberty, then no, I don't take that seriously. The dangers of big tech is a great conversation to have. Free speech is a great conversation to have. This is not that conversation. I'm also uninterested in making comparisons to the protests last summer. As I said last summer, as I've said on the show, and equally true of what happened on the 6th, 
Violence is unacceptable. We all already know that. This is not about the violence. Donald Trump was not impeached for incitement of violence. You might be hearing that a lot, but that is not true. And if you want to make comparisons to last summer, you can start by comparing Donald Trump's rousing condemnation of agitators, sending federal forces to Portland to sweep up protesters and unmarked vehicles, unleashing the U.S. Park Police to violently descend on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Park, and threatening to deploy the military on U.S. citizens to, please go home, we love you, you're very special. That's the comparison you can start with. Now, some people are talking about civil war, and that's been in the conversation for a while. I don't buy the comparisons to the Civil War, really, because it covers over the very, very big differences. But there is one way this is like the Civil War, and it's the conversation we need to have today. It is such a strange notion to contemplate that both the North and the South believed in the divine mandate of their cause. You may recognize the words of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, with that old familiar refrain, Glory, glory, hallelujah, the truth is marching on. Written for the Union forces during the Civil War, the song speaks to the intersection between Christian belief and defending the values upon which the American Constitution was built, or, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, our ancient faith. One stanza appeals directly, quote, In the beauty of the lilies Christ was born across the sea, with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free, while God is marching on. The Battle Hymn of the Republic was written by Julia Howe, whose husband, Samuel Howe, was a part of an activist collective called the Secret Six. You may recall John Brown, the abolitionist who attempted to take over the U.S. Armory at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Brown's attempt was funded by the Secret Six. It was 1859, and they had hoped, but failed, to stage a slave rebellion because they believed that the death of slavery would not occur without violence, a necessary means, so their thinking went, to a just end. They believed, more importantly, that the God of the Bible compelled it. But the South felt similarly. Deo Windice, the Confederacy's motto, meaning with God our defender or under God our vindicator, speaks of a deep-seated belief that God would vindicate the South and its agenda to preserve the institution of slavery. So who had God's favor? Abraham Lincoln believed, as he said in his second inaugural address, that it must be one or the other. Quote, both read the same Bible and pray to the same God, and each invokes his aid against the other. The prayers of both could not be answered. In personal writings hidden away only later to be discovered, we find that Lincoln wrestled with the issue further in private. Quote, in great contests, each party claims to act in accordance with the will of God. Both may be, and one must be, wrong. God cannot be for or against the same thing at the same time. This is one reality Abraham Lincoln had to confront. That these Christian values can be used to justify two completely opposite sides of the same moral issue. A reality that continued throughout our history. Indeed, Both the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and the Ku Klux Klan carried a Bible. But this idea that two opposite sides of the same moral issue can find a deeply embedded moral conviction that justifies their respective sides is not exclusive to religion. That ancient faith that Lincoln described, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, and the values that they were written around have all been used throughout our history to justify very different 
and very oppositional political views. Our divisions have grown so much that they encompass the very definition of an American. So when both sides appeal to the same set of values, it shows that it doesn't necessarily mean that the authentic patriot is the one who claims it. Many today say things like fight to defend the Constitution, but that doesn't mean that those who say it actually mean it, or that those who mean it actually do it. So it prompts a much deeper question. What does it mean to be an American today? What does it mean to be an American today? We answer this question with conservative and liberal identities, a summary of talking points culled from our parties and their pundits. But while waving the bloody flags of our partisan commitments, we've affirmed a much darker reality, that the American identity is division itself. You see, we have married cynicism with ideological devotion, an unholy partnership of distrust in each other while being certain in ourselves. And what happened on January 6th showed us the very dark underbelly of that marriage, that in this historic moment, we balance on a precipice, peering over the edge and staring into the valley of ruin below. Now, 74 million Americans voted for Donald Trump. I have no interest in blaming 74 million Americans for what happened at the Capitol. In fact, I've seen enough videos and interviews now of everything that happened that I'm not even willing to blame all of the Trump supporters that were there for what happened. But for those who broke into the Capitol, nothing of what they did and what they said they believe add up together. Because while they took down the American flag outside of the building and raised a Trump flag in its place, they called themselves patriots. While they threatened the lives of members of Congress and tried to open us up to a serious national security threat, they said they were defending our country. While attempting to dismantle the bulwark of our republic, they said they were fighting for the Constitution. It's easy for some of us to write this off as madness, because it is. But here's the thing. We all have both good and evil within us. I don't think that any of us are immune to it. Because when you think about something like the Confederacy, it's easy to believe that they were just evil people doing something evil. It's convenient. It allows us to say, if I had lived in that time, I would have known better. But the unsettling reality about the interest divided along the Mason-Dixon line is that the Confederates, in trying to preserve slavery, weren't just evil people doing something evil. The Confederates were ordinary people, doing something horrific, thinking they were doing something holy. That's the horrifying reality of what happened at the Capitol. It wasn't only an egregious, foolish attempt to deny the very right to vote to everyone in this country, including themselves, but for them, it was a holy crusade. For them, it was the right thing to do, the height of patriotic display. For them, it was what it meant to be an American today. Ordinary people doing something horrific, thinking they're doing something holy. How does someone get to that point? What are the steps? What are the right conditions? What are the things that need to happen? People don't just wake up one morning and put their faith in a television star so much that they're suddenly willing to commit sedition. Now, a lot of this is economic. A lot of this is geopolitical. Most of this is about trust, as we feel like we've all been left behind by both parties. But the first thing this is about, the most crucial thing this is about, 
is responsibility. Because none of us are immune to this, we have a responsibility to constantly take inventory of our beliefs and test them for what they produce in our behavior. We don't choose our words carefully enough. And for some of us, we don't take the link between words and the reality they produce seriously enough. Language structures our entire existence of the world. Don't forget that in 1930s Germany, it didn't begin with genocide. It began with calling the Jew a germ, a virus, a disease poisoning the blood of Germany. If you accept that an entire group of people are a problem that needs to be solved, then you don't have to be a racist to silently endorse the Nazi program nefariously called the Final Solution. If you accept that an entire group of people is a disease, then you're already anticipating the cure. It doesn't begin with genocide. It never does. It doesn't begin with putting children in detention centers. It begins with calling the foreigner a caravan of invaders. It doesn't begin with an attempted coup. It begins with saying that this was a stolen election. The steps from one to the other are small and imperceptible. Now, what happened at the Capitol is, at the end of the day, no one's responsibility but those who participated in it. And justice must prevail. But words matter. Leadership matters. And our willingness to take both seriously and speak up matters. Because it was not enough, the way he talked about Muslims, the way he talked about women. So then it was not enough that he mocked a disabled journalist, attacked a Gold Star father, or mocked the late John McCain for being a prisoner of war while serving his country. It was not enough that he fired the FBI director for not stopping an investigation that he wanted stopped. It was not enough that he could not just disavow the support of David Duke, the former Grand Wizard of the KKK, as easily as it should have been to do so. It was not enough when neo-Nazis descended on Charlottesville and he couldn't just condemn white supremacy groups the first time he opened his mouth. It was not enough when we found out he was given the intelligence about the Kremlin putting out bounties on U.S. soldiers and did nothing. It's not enough that now, almost a year later, he has still done nothing. It was not enough that in his first rallies he promoted violence, that as a protester was being led out of one of them, he said to the crowd, quote, if you hurt him, I'll defend you in court. It was not enough at the first debate that he couldn't tell Proud Boys to stand down because guess what? They didn't. It was not enough for us when he said, I have an article too. I can do whatever I want to. It was not enough that he violated federal law, tried to coerce an ally into digging up dirt on his political opponent by opening an investigation into an American citizen and then trying to cover it up. He lied about the coronavirus, scrambled the messaging, spread conspiracy, picked fights with governors, and intentionally suppressed testing. Now, at nearly 400,000 American deaths, it is not enough. If you're wondering how things could have gone this far, how these Trump supporters, not all of them, could have possibly thought it was acceptable to fulfill the mission of stopping the count the mission he sent them there to do, with violence and by attempting to overthrow the government. It is because we have bought, accepted, and become comfortable with the politics of cruelty that Donald Trump deals in. This fundamental belief 
that cruelty is the way we solve problems, and if I can't have it, I will take it. And I know plenty of Trump supporters who don't believe that, but that is Donald Trump's brand. We accepted it. And for what? Getting off on liberal outrage? Tax cuts? Some distorted perception that he fights for our religious values? Do not let it escape you that the thorn bushes of the horrific events that happened on January 6th were simply the inevitable end of a long, winding pathway sown with thorns. We will emerge on the other side of this. We will not emerge unscathed, but we will emerge. And when we do, it'll only be because we decided to confront the fundamental truth of democracy. We were exposed to that truth on January 6th. This truth speaks to how fragile it really is. That there is no ground beneath it. Democracy hangs by but a string, its threads fraying, straining to bear the weight. It reveals to us that there is no God of democracy, no final arbiter to guarantee that it will prevail. There are no saviors of democracy. There is no one person that we can put the entirety of our faith into. No one is coming for us. Now, at first glance, this truth is a nightmare. And so we run away from it. We overcomplicate the problems and oversimplify the solutions, buying into the magical thinking sold to us by demagogues, opportunists, and evil men. Because we feel helpless, powerless to make any change voiceless to make ourselves heard, so we abandon the work of politics and seek shelter in the embrace of authoritarian idolatry. We refuse responsibility for our politics and our country, but all that begins with refusing responsibility for our beliefs. But, upon a second glance, this same truth of democracy can be experienced as a miracle. It's the truth that calls out from our ancient faith, demanding that we and only we, are responsible for our nation's destiny. It's the truth courageously embraced by those who didn't abandon their posts at the Capitol, and those who gave their lives to ensure that the bulwark of our republic stood. It was embraced by those members of Congress who chose not to be cowed into fear, determined to get the job done and staying all through the night and into the early hours of the next morning. It's this truth that lights a fire beneath our feet, driving us to be informed, to keep our eyes open, to vote, and most importantly, to hold our leaders to account, because who else, this truth asks, will do it. I don't know what a new American identity looks like, one that transcends hostile partisanship and ideological divides. Perhaps, in part, it's that we endure. Because we've gone through worse, and we can get through this. But all I know is that no American identity suited to survive this dark moment can be without us bravely embracing that responsibility, and to do that by confronting this fundamental truth of democracy. There are no heroes here. It is up to us.
belongs to the brave. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. This generation did not create most of the conditions and the convictions which have led us to this day. But this generation has a responsibility to resolve them.